morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, glad you're joining us. If you're joining us online, we're glad you're joining us this morning. Um, uh, recently, my uh, wife and I got to take our kids to go to Disneyland, right? And uh, we went to Disneyland. It's been the first time since I was in high school, went to Disneyland, and, uh, and a lot's changed. You know that? Since I was in high school, a lot's changed at Disneyland. In fact, a lot, a lot's changed in all of our lives um, since I was in high school. As someone else pointed out to me, Sean, it's been a long time since you were in high school. And um, it doesn't feel that long ago, but it was a long time. And so um, they used to have these things, you remember this? They used to have fast passes at Disneyland, right? So much has changed Disneyland in the last two years if you've been there. Um, they now have these things called lightning lanes, right? And you can pay for these lightning lanes and um, uh, it, it doesn't get you to the front of the line, but you get a cut. You, you, you cut till there's about a 15-minute wait in the line. So when you're waiting, you know, instead of waiting the three-hour line to go on the Star Wars ride, you can wait 15 or 20 minutes. The way to actually get to the very front of the line, this is important for all you guys, this is really applicable to the sermon today, um, is if you have a stroller pass. Right? So if someone goes with you, who has got a stroller, stay behind with the stroller. You can even put a fake baby in there. They won't know the difference. And then you can cut to the very front of the line. Now, here's the deal. Okay? Um, showing up to church on Sunday, on Daylight Saving Time weekend, is not a stroller pass. But it is the lightning lane. You are going to get to sit a little close to Jesus in heaven. So... I'm glad you're here this morning. If you join us online, just know, just know, there's still a line. You can wait in the line. It's just going to be a, a lot, lot, you're going to be at the back of the line. So we're just glad you're joining us because we're all going to be there eventually, okay? Um, glad you're joining us this morning. Um, Matthew 25 is where we're at. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can follow along. Most of what we're going to be looking at, I'm going to be putting on this screen here, uh, Matthew 25. Now, if you remember, if you've been here before, or um, uh, you may remember, but you you very well may not, is Matthew 25 has been Jesus's answer to the question of basically, when is all this going to end, right? Um, he gives us these parables. He gives us two parables at the beginning of Matthew 25, warning us about how to be prepared for when this all comes to a conclusion. However that's going to look, he, he talks a lot about Matthew 24, and it's very confusing, um, but all how that's going to look. And then he gives us two parables, and we're coming to a passage today that we often misname as the parable of the sheeps and the goats. Now, I say we misname as the parable of the sheeps and the goat. Jesus does reference sheeps and goats, but this passage is not a parable. Uh, a parable is a simple story with a single point. It's... it's um, it's something that Jesus just made up to try and illustrate something for us. There's the only even like parabolic language is, the, is this little reference to Jesus. What Jesus is going to tell us today is what he is proposing is going to happen. Now, before we look at these words, I, I, I want to acknowledge the weight of what we're going to look at. What we're going to look at... Um, can be emotionally heavy. What Jesus is going to propose has very real consequences for people that we love. And, 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 and as we talk today, you may not agree with me about some of these things, and that's totally fine. Like, if you don't agree, I'm so, in fact, if, if there's anybody in this room who 100% agrees with me, you're in a lot of trouble, okay? Because I'm not very smart. 
If there are things when you read scripture that you wrestle with, if there are things that you read scripture in and you don't like, maybe the word we would use is you doubt, right? You say, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't, I don't think that that's, I don't believe that. That's totally fine. That's totally, in fact, in fact, here's what I challenge you. If there has never been a point in your life where you looked at something in scripture and said, I, I don't know about that. If you've never had to wrestle with something like one of two things, you're either lying to yourself or you've never read the Bible. Um, there are teachings in scripture that should grind against the things we've been taught, the things that we've learned in our culture. And, and this can be one of those points for much of our culture that is very uncomfortable. And if you don't agree, like that's, I'm glad you're here. Like, let's have a conversation, okay? So here we go, Matthew 25, you ready? We're gonna look at it. No more disclaimers, we're gonna look at it. Matthew 25, verse 31, it's gonna say this. It says this, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Okay, this is an important thing just to not get confused when he refers to it later. Um, what is the title of a man who sits on a throne? Somebody? A king, okay? So later, so, so just see, Jesus is referring to himself. He's later gonna refer to himself as the king, okay? So just so we don't get confused, we, we know exactly who he's talking about, okay? Here we go. Uh, verse 32, it says this. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. See, that, that's, a, that's just the one kind of parabolic spot. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Verse 24. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by, of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. So, so Jesus is, is clear that at the end of all things, when everything comes to summation, there's going to be a separating. There, there's going to be a line, right? Um, nobody rides a fence for eternity. There will be one side or the other, okay? And so Jesus says that there's going to be this group, he calls them the sheep, or he calls them the righteous the, sorry, the blessed of my father and another spot he refers to him as righteous, right? They're, they're on this side. And then there's gonna be this other group on this side, okay? He calls them the goats, the accursed. He, here, here's the question that we should ask ourselves before we even read on. What separates those two groups? Shouldn't that be important, right? That, that should be a really important question because if there's real eternal consequences for which side of the group you're gonna end on, we wanna make sure that we end up on the right side of that, that dividing line that Jesus is separating the sheep and the goats. So, so look at, Jesus is gonna tell us how he separates them. Look at this, here we go, you ready? Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Later on, he's gonna to talk to the group that he calls the accursed, the goats, right? And he's gonna say, um, you didn't come to me. He, he says the exact same thing, but in the negative about everything. For I was hungry and you didn't give me anything to eat. I was thirsty and you didn't give me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. You didn't invite me in naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and you did not visit me. I was in prison and you did not come to me. So, so Jesus is saying there's something going on here that's important. We need to pay attention to. He separates the two people and he says, you, you, you did these things and you 
didn't do these things. Now there's a curious thing that happens. Look at what happens in verse 37. For the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you? Hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Again, in fact, the, the, the uh, accursed group, the goats, they're going to respond the exact same way. They're going to say the exact same thing verbatim, just all in the negative. They're going to say, when, when did we see you? When did we see you? The, the, the implication is, Lord, Lord, if we'd seen you, we would have done something, but, but when did we see you? It's, it's interesting and maybe should make us um, a little humbly nervous to recognize that even the ones he calls blessed by my father are confused and surprised. When, when Jesus separates it all at the end, their response is, what? What? What, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are you talking about? When, when, did, when did we, this, this thing that makes the dividing line right here, when, 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 when did we see you in the, the accursed or the goats? They, they can say the same thing. When, when, when did we see you, Right? says this, verse 40. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, oh, actually, where I read that, here's verse 40, actually, right here. The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even one of the least of these, you did it to me. And then he begins the same exact conversation, but everything's in the opposite with the next group, right? It says this, then he will also say to those on his left, the goats, or this is your left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So, so what's, here's the temptation we have. Here's the, here's the temptation we have in this reading. Is Jesus saying that the people who, who experience eternal life, the people who receive eternity, who receive the inheritance that God has prepared for them, are those the people that do nice things, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of what it looks like, right? Jesus separates them out and he says, you guys get eternal life, you guys get eternal damnation, you get eternal life because you were kind to strangers, you fed people, you cared for, he, here, here's the problem. Here's the really, here's, here's, here's the massively huge problem. Massively huge problem with that. Like the rest of scripture. In fact, in fact, there's this passage, um, let me skip forward here, to Ephesians. Ephesians, you've probably heard this verse before. Ephesians 2, it says this, for by grace, you know what grace means? Grace is unmerited favor. It's an undeserved reward, or maybe in this context we could use undeserved inheritance. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, right? It's not what you've, so wait a second, we just read the story and Jesus says, in the end, I'm going to separate people out, and one group's going to be on this side, and one group's going to be on this side, and what's going to separate them is that this one group did a bunch of nice things, and this group didn't do a bunch of nice things. There's got to be something more complex going on in this story that Jesus is giving us. There's got to be something deeper going on. I mean, Paul, look what he says. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. 
I mean, all this, like, it's just going to be like, wait, wait a second. G- Jesus just said that they did all these nice things and so they get eternal life. But Paul says just later and a million times throughout scripture, but it's not of their work. So which is it? How, how can these two things coexist? Is it by grace through faith as a gift? Or, or is it because you cared for people who were overlooked and neglected and so you you get, what is it? Like what's going, there's gotta be something more complex. This is one of the great wrestlings we have in the church in America today. We constantly, subtly are tempted to lean ourselves over into the way of believing that we have earned our reward by our good actions. Here's another way of saying it. Many of us think that the end thrust of the Christian faith is for you to be a good person. (laughs) It's not. You will, according to scripture, you will never be a good person. You, I mean, this side of heaven, you will never, you, scripture says that you were born in iniquity, that your heart is wicked beyond comprehension. Uh, in fact, in the Old Testament, there's this really great passage. It says, uh, it says that um, even your sacrifices and your worship, right? Just think for you for the moment, right? Maybe there's a moment for you. Maybe you haven't had a moment like this, um, depending on where you are in your walk with, with the Lord. But you've had that moment and you're in a room and there's music playing or there's a sermon being preached and it just like cuts right in you and you're just like, everything in you wants to leap with joy and celebration, the goodness of God's grace and you just want to sing and you want to shout out. Scripture says, in those moments, you know what he says to the, the Jews in those moments? He says, they're filthy rags. Filthy rags. That every effort of yourself to fix yourself, to clean yourself, or to indebt God to you, to convince God that you are deserving is antithetical to the gospel. It is the exact opposite of what Jesus, if, 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 if the message of Jesus was be a good person and do good things, then let me ask you this, just real practically, like why would Jesus die on a cross? Couldn't he teach you to be a good person and model for you to be a good person? And you might say, well, you know, uh, he shows the depths of his, his love that he'd sacrifice himself for me. But if I can get myself to heaven by being good, he's not sacrificing himself for me. He's just dying. It is complete, the opposite, and it is so subtle and so perverse. This is, this is what Paul is talking, and, and he says, who has bewitched you? Who's bewitched you? So often our hearts are tempted to, to, to lean towards this temptation to believe that what Jesus is asking us to do is just be good people who do nice things. But there's something deeper going on, what Jesus is saying in this separation. And, and I think we can see a hint of it. We can see a hint of it in, in the titles he gives the people that he's addressing. So, so look, I, I, put them, I put them both on the screen for you together, Right? Um, the first group, he, he says this, come you who are blessed by my father, right? So obviously the question is, how do we get to be this group? Because <laughs> we want to be this group, not this group. The other one, he says, depart from me, a cursed one. He, here's the thing about um, this word blessed. There's a lot of Greek words. There's a collection of Greek words that sometimes get translated as the word blessed. Um, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Right? 
Blessed are the blah, 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 blah. A lot of times at the, at the root of that, that Greek word is this kind of idea of happiness or joy, right? And so actually, in fact, you might find some translations, it's kind of an uncomfortable way to read it because it's so unfamiliar to us a lot of times, but it'll say like, happy are the poor in spirit, <laughs> right? Happy when you're persecuted and you're like, well, I'm not real happy in those moments, right? But at the root of it, it kind of has this idea like, like rejoicing and having joy and being happy. That's not this word. That's not this word. This word is actually, um, it's, we kind of still have this idea in our culture. It, it's the idea like maybe you went to a type of church that ended service with a blessing. You ever been to a church? Maybe you went to a wedding or um, a funeral or some sort of religious service and someone stood at the end and they read a blessing over you, Right? And he, here's what's going on in that moment. They are, they are um, eliciting the power of Jesus and his name to declare a truth over you that is not yet reality. They are, they are speaking words by the power of God to say, this is going to be your truth, but it is not your truth in this moment. It is not your reality yet. This is, this is what it says here. That those who have been declared something that they are not yet by my father. We, we see this all throughout scripture. There's um, Gideon. You remember Gideon? Um, Gideon uh, led this army and he had this huge group of people and, and, and uh, um, God kept winnowing out until he ended up with a very small group of people. And then God went and defeated this army with Gideon. But you remember when he finds Gideon, he finds Gideon hiding. He finds Gideon hiding from the oppressors that are around him. And he's, he's a coward. Gideon is a coward. And you know what? The angel shows up, the, the messenger of God shows up. And you know what he says? He says, Gideon, mighty warrior. <laughs> There's nothing about Gideon that is a mighty warrior. But he's speaking a blessing over. He's declaring something about him that is not yet true as if it is true. This is the thrust of justification in the gospel. You are not righteous. You are not holy. I am not righteous or holy. I am not good. But because of what Jesus has done, God declares something about us. He speaks a truth about us that is not yet true and will not be true this side of heaven. He declares that he will treat us as his son, just perfect and blameless as Jesus was. That we are declared righteous. Now this, this group here, um, this is another interesting word. And you have to understand some things about ancient Near Eastern culture. And um, see, in ancient Near Eastern culture, we, we in our culture, we... Um, we compartmentalize areas of our lives really well, right? We have our physical life, we have our emotional life, we have our spiritual life, and we, we separate those. And we would honestly, we, we, we would look at a little, uh, most of us would kind of look down our nose at someone who blurred those lines too much, right? If you, know, if you had a cold and someone came up to you and they're like, they're like hey, I, I heard you coughing, I, I, I see you have a cold, um, you must have a demon oppressing you. Can I pray to cast the demon out of you? <laughs> you go, uh, you're, you're nuts. You know how colds work. Like there's these viruses, there's these, these magical things that I can't see that are in the air everywhere. And then they get in your bloodstream. I never took a biology class, so I don't actually know how uh, viruses work. But the, 
There's this magic that happens and then you get this virus and you get sick, right? There, there's a separation. We compartmentalize our emotional health, our, our spiritual health, and our physical health. Well, ancient Aries didn't. They saw those things all as intertwined. In fact, you remember the story? There's, there's a guy and he's blind and they ask Jesus this. They say, um, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sin or his parents? Implicit in the question is that there's an intertwining between the physical and spiritual reality, that if he is sick, there must be a spiritual component. And because of that, in the ancient Near East, they had one concept of being sick. That if you were cursed, if you were ill, if you were sick, if you were broken, you were sick physically and spiritually and emotionally. It was all intertwined. And so, so um, it, it could very well be translated to say, depart from me, the sick ones. And here's the truth that scripture teaches us over and over again. The sick ones are us. That there is a sickness inside of us called sin that is consuming and destroying like a parasite everything about our lives. It destroys relationships. It destroys our affections. It destroys our worship. It consumes everything about us that we, every single one of us, apart from the saving work of Jesus, are sick, are broken, are, maybe another word, here's, here's another good one, are diseased that we're consumed with a type of cancer that will eventually consume all of our spirit and our bones and our flesh and everything about us. You see what Jesus is separating the groups, not because of their actions, but because the fruit of their actions are evidence of the condition of their soul. You remember, um, Jesus is having this conversation in one day. And you remember how the day started? He walks into Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree and it's supposed to have figs and it doesn't have figs and he curses it. You remember that? Right? He curses. He says, he says blah. I don't know what he said. He curses the fig tree. Right? Because the fruit of the fig tree was evidence of a disease in the soul of the fig tree. Jesus is not impressed, shocked, or, or offended or ashamed by the brokenness of our soul. But every single one of us is broken and messed up and apart from the declaration of God over you that you are his son or his daughter, redeemed and restored, treated the same exact way as he treats his perfectly dearly beloved son. There is no life. You see, um, the reason that Jesus, uh, the reason that Jesus emphasizes what they're doing, their actions, is because our actions are intimately connected with the condition of our heart. You see, when Jesus begins to declare something over us, when God declares something over us, that's justification. But as the, as the spirit begins to work on us, it's a word we call sanctification. He begins to shape and mold us. That as we pursue God more, as we entrust him, as we lay down our, 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 our self-confidence and our arrogance and our pride, as we lay those things down, he begins to shape and transform our hearts to where we begin to slowly look more and more like him. Um, early on in this conversation, um, Jesus is asked questions. And you remember, he, he's asked this one question. What is the greatest commandment? You remember that? Right? What's the greatest commandment? And, and what's he says? He says, the greatest commandment is this, is to love the Lord your God with everything, right? With all that you are, to love the Lord your God with everything you are. 
And then he says this, he says, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, many of us read that, and here's what we think Jesus just answered the question. They say, they say um, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with everything that you are. And for extra credit, the second most important thing is to love other people. But that's not what it says. In the Greek, it's really clear that that's not what it says. It says, like being of the same nature, of the same character, of the same source. So what Jesus is saying, John picks up this later, right? We've talked about this many times. John says, um, how can you claim to, to love God and hate your brother? That loving God and loving people are birthed out of the same heart posture, are birthed out of the same heart that's being transformed and redeemed and reshaped by a good and gracious God, who truths have been declared over you that may not yet be true in you, but the Spirit is working to redeem and restore in you. It's a people, we talked about this a couple months ago. I'll bring back our Venn diagram here. In first service, there was a little issue with the, the text and uh, government ended up like printed right here, right above God. <laughs> uh, uh, that's a typo, that's... Um, uh, anyways, we got to fix. Don't panic, okay? But here's what we said. You remember, they asked the initial question, one of the initial questions they asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And, and we said that what Jesus is saying is that there is a way to love and serve God with all of your being that does include submission and obedience to governing authorities. There are things that governing authorities can ask of you that are outside or in rebellion to obedience to God, but those things can coexist. And then they ask the next question. The next question is, um, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with everything that you are. And when you do, look, look at the diagram, when you do, when you love God with everything that you are, you will love people. You see, Jesus is separating out these two groups of people, not because some people did nice things and other people didn't do nice things, but because there were people who in all of their brokenness and all their mess and all their failed ways gave themselves fully in the pursuit of God. And so then when they loved other people, it was almost like a shock. Like, oh, I just, I just, I wanted to be as much like you. I wanted to show the kind of love that you've shown me because you see the truth we've talked about over and over again is that loved people will love people. The people, the more you understand the depths of God's love for you, you will not be able to restrain yours. The more you understand your brokenness and the incredible sacrifice that God made for you, the recklessness with which God poured himself out to chase after you, the more you understand that, the more you will love others the more you understand from the depths with which you've been saved, the depths with which you've been rescued and ransomed, the question of cost won't even come into the picture. You will gladly give all of yourself in pursuit of him. You see, Jesus is separating out two groups of people, a people who have given themselves to grace by faith, and they've allowed that to transform and redeem and shape and change everything about who they are. And those who thought that they could earn their way to God, because you see, they were shocked and surprised because they were waiting for the moment to earn their salvation. But God sees something deeper in them. You see, our, our path 
to redemption and restoration is not doing good things and being nice people. It's being people who recklessly give ourselves in the pursuit and worship of our God. And when you do, church, if we do, if we give ourselves fully in pursuit, in every, every moment that you find attention and a wrestling in your life, if you come back to finding a way to pursue and worship God, it will change the way you act. Not because you're trying to convince God that you're worthy, but because God will begin to shape and redeem and restore your heart. That if we are a people who can worship God with reckless abandon in everything that we are, in all of our lives, we will be a people because of that, as a byproduct of that, who will see redemption and restoration in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our communities and in our nation and in our world. Not because we're trying to be good people who convince God we're worthy of his love, but because of humble, reckless Abandoned. God is worthy of everything of who we are. So may we be, may we be a church. May we be a people. May our community be filled with people who worship God with reckless abandon because when we do, we will become conduits, not containers of his grace and mercy. And when we do, we will begin a process of redeeming and restoring everything that is broken because of our worship of our good God. So I pray today that you might worship with all that you are so that life and hope and a future and peace and joy might pour into you and into the community around us.